This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, visualizing the information domain in a new era of deterrence and warfare. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Information exerts a powerful influence on policy and subsequently on war, where the will is a composite of convictions, perceptions, and influences that drive action. Given the complexities and changing nature of modern conflict, nations must develop accurate models of influence campaigns, information operations, counter-influence operations, and their interactions with and impacts on land, air, sea, space, and cyber domains. The Institute for the Study of War and the IBM Center for the Business of Government have launched a collaborative series on addressing the new era of deterrence and warfare. What is the information domain? How has the digital age impacted the national defense calculus? What challenges and opportunities do information operations pose to effective decision-making? And how does this effort rest on transforming leadership and culture? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, retired Lieutenant General Mike Nagata, advisor and contributor to the ISW and IBM Center effort. General Nagata, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. So my first question, General, is around you know the U.S. military and, and, and NATO joint doctrine recognizes five domains of warfare, and they are, and I know you know this in your sleep, but just for our audience, air sea, land, space, and cyber. My question to you, sir, is information another domain amongst these five, or is it an environment in which all of the others operate in? Yeah, at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to dodge your question, and by the way, (laughs) thank you for inviting me to participate in this, um, the answer is both yes and no, Um, which sounds like a dodge, I suppose, but let me try to explain what I mean by that. It can be usefully considered as a domain in the same way we have traditionally considered um, our atmosphere to be a domain or the terrestrial environment we live in is a domain. It can be thought of that way. But in some ways, it is also not a domain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason I say that is is because most domains – Possibly with the exception of cyber that you've already mentioned, but it's, for me, it's hard to distinguish between the so-called information domain and the cyber domain. I would argue they're the same thing. But regardless, our traditional domains, the air, land, and sea, they are rather unchanging. The sea is mostly what it has always been. The land has mostly been what it has always been. I mean, you have to go all the way back to the separation of the continents and the Ice Age to see major changes. Whereas in the information domain, things are changing radically every single day. So the problem with considering this a domain lies in thinking it's static. 
It is anything but static. It is, in my opinion, the single most rapidly evolving environment that mankind currently inf- interfaces with. Well, that's very interesting. So, you know, we talked about it briefly before before we met today uh, about the digital age. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that's connected to the information domain conversation. But I'm wondering, in your mind, given your background mm-hmm. and your last tour, if you will, your last leadership, how has the digital age impacted the national defense calculus? And where I'm going with this is yeah. what exactly – can you describe for our audience what exactly we mean by information domain and the key components of this domain? Right. That is an excellent question that it takes far longer than the time you have allotted for this podcast to answer, but I'll take a stab at it nonetheless. Um, I think a very useful and appropriate way to answer your question is to consider information as a form of power, and it is rapidly augmenting power whether it is the rather mundane reality we all live these days that large technology companies literally track you and your phone and know what you do and what you buy and what your preferences are and who your relationships are with, that's a form of power. Um, All the way to both malign actors and beneficial actors using information to advance their own interests in ways that were previously unavailable to mankind. As an example, it is now possible for a single human being, you or me, to establish a personal relationship and dramatically influence the behavior of another human being on the other side of the planet that you and I will never be in the physical presence of. But we can change what that person believes, we can change what that person values, and therefore we can change the choices that he or she makes. That is a form of power. Yeah. And, you know, as a follow-up, I'm just wondering, how did, what's the evolution? When did we see this form of power, as you you call it, Mm -hmm. when did it come on the world stage, if you will? Like, is there a timing? Has it evolved rapidly? I mean, just getting a sense of... It's actually not a new phenomenon, at least in my experience. I mean, as we all learn in school, uh, you know, the, the emergence of the printing press in medieval times, which led to the ability to publish large amounts of consumable data written on paper, of course, uh, and still had to be physically carried from location to location. But nonetheless, that was a revolution in human affairs. It changed the face of human civilization. We're now seeing a high-technology version of that. And I don't, I, I don't think I can come up with a scientific uh, uh, analysis of what the difference in the scale of power that flowed from either the first printing press or today's creation of the internet, but the the amount of power that has emerged because of the digital age is similar to what happened with the emergence of the printing press, but it is vastly more powerful, exponentially more powerful, and it is becoming more and more powerful every single day. Yeah, and just and I want to get too technical, and I have a question around. You mentioned experience. Let me let me get to that first, mm-hmm. because what I was going to get at is you mentioned the printing press. And I'm thinking to myself that 
you really couldn't get these influencers, as we say, even if yeah. we were taken out of a, dense, a, right. a defense posture. Right. And we just talk about these internet influencers, yeah. if you will. Could you see this happening at the scale and, 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 and velocity it has mm-hmm. without the advent of wireless? How does the... How do the instruments or the the components play into the development of the information domain? I mean, the ability of ubiquitous wireless communications that are now available to every single person on the planet that can afford a smartphone is a breathtaking increase in the amount of power that comes from this. But in my judgment, it is simply a high-technology, more modern version of this older tradition that I've already mentioned with the creation of the printing press. I mean, one way to think of the original Martin Luther King is that he was an influencer who was propelled by the emergence of publishable materials because of the printing press. What we now call influencers today, they don't rely on ink and paper. They don't rely on a printing press. They rely on their access to the internet and the various mostly commercial platforms that enable someone to project their influence globally if they wish to. Yeah. So I want to go back to, you mentioned the term experience. I'd like to know more about your career, your career path. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us more about yourself? Sure. I spent... uh, 38 years in the United States Army before I retired. Um, The vast preponderance of that military career was in U.S. Special Operations Forces. Um, I uh, did the first 10 years of my career mostly in the Asia Pacific. And then after that, I was either somewhere in the Balkans or the Middle East or South Asia or Africa, mostly driven pretty predictably by the emergence of the war on terror after 9-11. I also did four tours in Washington, D.C., which I often tell my, my friends that was, is probably the most complex, dangerous, and hostile environment <laughs> I've ever had to operate in. Um, it also, more seriously, though, um, I learned a lot mm-hmm. by being deployed for so very long. But I also learned a lot by being in Washington, D.C. I learned how my government, at least the national security sure. of our government, actually function or in some cases fail to function. Um, my last assignment was as the director of strategy at the National Counterterrorism Center here in Washington, D.C. And it really was in about the last decade of my career uh, that I became more and more exposed and more and more aware of uh, the reality that information in all of its various forms being fundamentally propelled by a new phenomenon called cyberspace or the internet or whatever you want to call it, is literally changing the face of national security right in front of our eyes. Fascinating. It's a nice segue into my next question, which is around what, and given your background, General, uh, what would constitute sort of an inflection points and or centers of gravity Mm -hmm. in the information operations? And how do we identify, assess, and visualize them, if if you could? Well, I... As is the tendency of retired generals, uh, we tend to see the we, set, we tend to view the world through war stories. We like to tell. Uh, I will try not to inflict a whole bunch of pointless war stories on you or your listening audience. But I think a couple of experiences I had are instructive in answering both of the questions you just posed. The first one happened to me uh, in the early days. This would have been in 2014 of what eventually became the global coalition efforts against the Islamic State in both Iraq and Syria. Um, So I was responsible for um, 
most of the special operations activities that were occurring in Iraq and Syria at the time. And um, because the problem that we face with ISIS uh, was not just in Iraq, it was also in Syria, uh, rather predictably, one of the headquarters that I had to establish was in the Kingdom of Jordan. And the Jordanians were very gracious in allowing us to do that. They're great, part they're great military partners under any circumstances. Um, so I, I had established a headquarters there. I, I also had a headquarters in Iraq for similar reasons. Um, and I was paying a visit to that headquarters in Jordan. And after the formal meetings were over, I thought I would just go into the operations center and just talk to people and see what was going on. And I noticed uh, that there were there was a small group of about four or five of my officers that were clustered around a laptop. I was not close enough that I was part of the conversation. I was frankly eavesdropping on their conversation. And I could, I could tell that they were having a bit of a debate among themselves regarding a particularly prolific and dangerous ISIS media actor who was spewing very dangerous propaganda that was creating real problems for both us and our coalition partners. But they were having an argument about whether or not we had the authority to contest him on the internet in the way we wanted to. Because at the time, the, the decisions to conduct such activities were being held back in the United States. They, they, they were not decisions I could make in the field. But then I noticed on the other side of the Americans, one of the Jordanian officers that was on my staff was also doing what I was doing. He was eavesdropping on the conversation. But then I saw he walked away, and a few minutes later, he walked back. But this time, he walked right into the middle of the Americans, and he said in perfect English, gentlemen, I have done it for you. And the Americans all looked at him and said, you did what? He said, I have done what you were talking about. I've taken care of this guy. He will have much more difficulty in the future doing what he is doing. And the Americans looked at the Jordanian rather perplexed and rather irritated, saying, well, hold, well, hold on a second. We weren't debating how we were going to contest this guy. We were debating whether or not we had the authority to contest this guy without getting permission all the way back from the United States. And we've already come to the conclusion we don't have the authority. You can't just go ahead and do this. And the Jordanian gave the Americans a very irritated look, and he said, you are Americans, I am Jordanian. You may not be able to do this here, but this is my country. I can do anything I want to here. And he turned on his heel and he walked away in a huff. And the reason I'm telling you that story is not just because of this rather unforgettable moment where I briefly thought to myself, this might be how we lose this war. But more importantly, this, I think, helps your listening audience understand that much of what plagues the United States in taking advantage of the information domain in the way that many of our adversaries are taking advantage of it is not because it's hard, not because it's complicated, not because it's technologically demanding. It is all those things. But it's really because of our own risk aversion, our own reluctance to take the risks necessary to be effective in this domain. And it is risky. Almost anything you put on the internet, anything you put in cyberspace can come back to bite you. But the only way you learn how to do something dangerous and complex is by doing it.
In the same way that we all learned when we were children how to ride a bicycle, the way you ride a bicycle is by fi- falling off the bicycle. The more times you fall off the bicycle, the, you'll, the better you'll get at riding the bicycle. Failure and mistakes are a necessary component. It's a very long-winded answer, but I really want to get to this point that what prevents the United States, in my judgment, from being as effective as it needs to be in this new landscape is basically that age-old lesson about riding a bicycle. If we're not willing to make mistakes and occasionally hurt ourselves with what we do on the internet in cyberspace, we'll never become as proficient as we need to be. Can I stay on this example that you just shared? And where I want to go with it is maybe you could explain for our audience. So you're you're a commander Mm -hmm. on the ground, and you could potentially engage that individual and physically end their life. Yes. Right? And it was a twofold question. What makes the cyber engagement different from what I would construe as a land or air engagement? And would making the information domain part of these other five give the credence and give them authority to do that and maybe mitigate the risk? Do you understand what I'm I'm getting at? They're very good questions. Um, There there are several things (sighs) – that mostly for unfortunate reasons make America's ability or the American government's ability to become as proficient and as effective as it should be in this, in this arena flows from at least two important sources. One is that it's just unfamiliar, okay. particularly to policymakers that are about my age. They're in their 60s and 70s. They're not digital natives. Uh, for whom the digital environment is still unfamiliar. Uh, whereas our children, you know, certainly my children, my grandchildren, they are digital natives. This is anything but unfamiliar to them. But for policymakers, this is unfamiliar. And when you're on unfamiliar ground, you tend to be careful, um, which is another way of saying you're on the doorstep of risk aversion. Um, so that's, no, that's number one. Number two, um, we have very strong and necessary traditions in the United States uh, about how the government cannot and must not propagandize American citizens, should not even attempt to wield any form of undue inappropriate influence on wh- what Americans believe, what Americans value, how Americans live their lives. We are so inured to that as Americans when we consider the fact that at least lawfully there's no prohibition for us trying to influence a foreign population. We still tend to shrink from it because we are so inured to the idea we're not supposed to. It's very hard for us to cross this mental distinction that, okay, but we're in, at least overseas, we're not talking about Americans. That doesn't mean we should be disrespectful of their rights. That doesn't mean we should be disrespectful of their own needs for unimpeded speech and what have you. But there is a difference here, but we're reluctant to grasp the difference. And then fundamentally, um, we're, we're so comfortable with national security solutions that do not involve trying to influence or inform foreign populations. I mean, we literally have hundreds of years of tradition and law that undergird the use of physical force against a lawful adversary. Um, 
So it, it, at the risk of telling another story, this is actually a very famous story about a former boss of mine, uh, retired General Stanley McChrystal. Um, and I remember this happening. Uh, it's, it's widely quoted with this very frustrating moment when he was uh, worried about a particularly prolific media figure that worked for al-Qaeda in Iraq. And that was our principal adversary back then. But he got to the point where he said in a meeting to his uh, judge, judge advocate general, his lawyer, let me get this straight. You're telling me that I can drop a bomb on this fellow and kill him, but if I want to send him an email, I cannot. And the lawyer said to him, General McChrystal, that is correct. You can kill him, but you cannot send him an email. Fascinating. If you don't mind me asking if it's what transpired. Did anything you know, honestly, happen? I don't okay, remember. I, was just wondering. I, I don't remember. I know, I know we did not message him. Okay. We did not, we, nobody sent him the, the email or whatever it is we wanted to send him because we were told by the, by the military lawyer, you cannot do that. Yeah. It is unlawful. Um, we, we may have killed or captured that guy as an alternative, which isn't a bad outcome, I suppose. But, there, but increasingly, I would argue – I'm deviating from your question here a little bit. But increasingly, I would argue we're, the United States is face, facing national security challenges around the world that either should not or cannot be solved by the application of physical force. Sure. We still have to find a way to successfully deal with that problem. But our traditional go-to solution, which is the application of kinetic power, mm -hmm. is becoming less and less appropriate. It's never going to become completely inappropriate. There will always be land battles, air battles, naval battles, and we should be as awesome as we want need to be in those circumstances. But in this new domain or environment or whatever it is we're going to call it in the future, this is where we are lagging behind. And, and in some cases, seriously lagging behind our competitors or our adversaries. More on visualizing the information domain in a new era of deterrence and warfare when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Leaders speak on visualizing the information domain in a new era of deterrence and warfare with retired Lieutenant General Mike Nagata. I was wondering, you go, go back to an earlier comment you made. And again, I'm not trying to split um, hairs here, but I would love to get your perspective. 
you had mentioned that potentially under the domain of cyber, yes. the information could fit under there. If I'm t- putting words could. in your mouth. As, is it a subdomain of cyber? And I was just wondering if you could explain to me what your, why you believe that, what your perspective is there. Candidly, I'm unsure. Okay. Um, I, 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 this is something I have kind of an ongoing argument with myself Hopefully. over. Okay. Uh, on the one hand, it would be convenient and would be much easier and simpler if we could just categorize mm-hmm. specific arenas in the digital universe. Here is the public internet. Sure. Here is the deep and dark web. That's a way of doing it. Another way of doing it is by types of activities. These, this is the layer at which governments operate. This is the layer at which commercial entities operate. This is the layer at which you know Mike Nagata, his wife, and his kids operate. You know, this is the world of buying stuff on Amazon.com and doing my you know online banking. The problem is, I've come to the conclusion that none of those categorization models are sufficient. None of them are completely wrong. Mm-hmm. They're just all insufficient. I, maybe it's going to probably take somebody much smarter than me to take all the ways in which one can regard this new ever-expanding environment. That's another problem. That's it's constantly changing. changing. Yeah. And find an elegant, simple easily digestible way of saying this is what it all is. This is what this universe actually is like. I I have yet to see a compelling description. And I think one of the reasons it's not possible right now is because the digital domain tomorrow will be different than the digital domain today. Hardware, firmware, and software are are iterating so fast. The things that are literally impossible in the cyber world today will be possible next year. And, and it really is sort of like thriving in the era of uncertainty in some respects in that respect. Indeed. Yeah. So my next question, going back a little bit, mm-hmm. and maybe you kind of touched on it, General, was you know, from your vantage point, um, what challenges, which I think you outlined, but, mm-hmm. but more importantly, what opportunities do information operations yes. pose to a swift and effective decision-making for the policymakers? There are several advantages, but I'll start with the decision-making part. Um, Rather obviously, whether you're in government or you're in the commercial world, the, the organization or the leader that can make the best, most well informed and fastest decision will be able to outcompete everybody else who's not as who tends to not be as correct as often who tends not to be as well informed and who tends to be slower you know if you take two people with those two sets of characteristics it's easy to predict who's going to emerge triumphant um, all of that is driven by information all of that is a consequence of what is that individual's access to the best, most timely, and fastest sources of information. And then, correspondingly, has the ability to do increasingly high-speed data processing because the amazing reality we live in now is you can literally drown a leader with the amount of information that is now available. You, You can inflict analysis paralysis on an individual because they have too much information, too fast, they can't absorb it, and it ends up paralyzing them. 
So at the risk of extending your question beyond what you actually asked, there is what seems to me right now to be almost unlimitless potential for individuals or organizations to make ever better and faster decisions. But the one of the principal obstacles that everyone is now facing is because of the emergence of this digital environment, we're all now drowning in information. How do you find not just the needle in the haystack, how do you find the needle in a haystack of needles? Because not every needle is information you need, but there are some needles in here that are information that are absolutely priceless to you. How do you sort through this ever-growing haystack and find what you need so that you do make better and faster decisions than your, than your competitor or your opponent? And that's where another aspect of the digital domain comes into play, and that is the combination of incredibly high-speed data processing that leverages artificial intelligence, where at the risk of saying it in a way that scares people, to a degree you must take the human out of the equation if the human being is actually going to be able to use the information that is now at his or her fingertips. That's a frightening proposition for many people. Well, I want to get into that, you know, uh, number of uh, hay the haystack analogy mm -hmm. you make and the, sort of the metaphor of haystack. In this in this kind of environment, mm -hmm. what if the haystack is filled by near-peer competitors with misinformation and false information. Yep. How do you kind of navigate that reality where you, as you just said so eloquently, these leaders and, and, and are being, you know, <clears throat> inundated with data. Yes. But how do you separate accurate or right. factual data from purposefully right. misinformed uh, information? This is going to sound way too glib, but I'll, I'll try to <laughs> amplify in a way that makes it less glib by trying hard enough. Okay. Um, this is so daunting. And for people, and particularly for people of my generation, as I've already indicated, so alien to us because we're not digital natives. Yeah. We're, we're, digi we're digital tourists. Um, the, that we have to understand, we have to grasp this fundamental reality, which in many ways I've already alluded to, that the only way to become as proficient as you, your question suggests is to be willing to make a lot of mistakes in getting there. We will fall off this bicycle repeatedly. We will hurt ourselves repeatedly. That's the only path to getting to where we're better than everybody else because our adversaries don't care if they make mistakes. They don't care if they do something in the digital domain that blows up in their face or hurts somebody. They don't care. Okay, we learned from that. Let's try again. I don't care that someone got harmed by this. We'll either replace them or we just don't care enough to replace them. But we're going to keep going. We don't care how much collateral damage comes from our ruthless experimentation to get better. Now, I'm not suggesting we should be like them. We have to care about unintended collateral damage, unintended consequences. We have to care. But that doesn't mean we're screwed. That doesn't mean we've lost. What it means is we just have to be faster and more aggressive within narrow, narrower moral and ethical constraints than our adversaries are. 
We have to be so relentless and so fast at experimenting, at becoming better in all these various aspects of the digital environment that we've just talked about, that we compensate for the fact we cannot be morally ruthless the way our adversaries are. This is not impossible. Mm -hmm. It's just incredibly hard. Unfortunately, as my story about um, what I saw at that, my Jordanian headquarters illuminated a few minutes ago, we handcuff ourselves in ways we do not have to. It's cultural, but it's also – It's mostly cultural. Uh, and and it, it – this is going to sound like I'm dodging your question, but this, <laughs> this, uh, this is another thing that immediately comes to mind. And it's something I noticed only in about the last 10 years of my career. I'm going to first talk about something that I suspect you and your listening audience are very familiar with. It, it, it's tragic, but it's become very familiar, especially since 9-11. You know, unfortunately, lots of U.S. service members, diplomats, intelligence officers, law enforcement officers have been grievously harmed. Many have been killed in the last 20 years. Generally happens in my experience in the aftermath of one of these terrible tragedies is that a policymaker, uh, a congressional member, some very important high profile person in our government, sometimes even the president of the United States himself, will get to a microphone and talk about how tragic this is, how much we mourn with this individual's loved ones, but that the best way to honor this individual's sacrifice is to redouble our efforts and ensure that we succeed so that his sacrifice can never be considered as having been in vain. That's the typical policymaker response. And we're all very familiar with this. Yes. Contrast that with what has happened in the wake of a public failure by the government in the information domain. Yeah. There will be people that rush to a microphone, <laughs> but they will rush to the microphone not to praise the effort and say to the, only, the best way to honor this terrible setback is to redouble our efforts, is to become even better at this. Quite the contrary. The typical policymaker will condemn what has happened. There will then be a witch hunt to find the guilty. And the word will quickly get around the U.S. government because of those acts of retribution against failure. Okay, the last thing I'm going to do is get involved in an activity in the information environment because I see what happens to people when something goes wrong. Now, there are probably some people in your audience who are very familiar with this environment who think I'm being either – I'm either exaggerating or I'm taking this out of context. I, I, I don't agree with either. I, I've seen this too often. When a heroic tragedy happens on the physical battlefield, our reaction is the polar opposite to what I see when there is a failure in the information environment. It, typically, in the, in the wake of a failure in the information environment, no matter how well-intentioned it was, the witch hunt now begins. It's fascinating. So I'm like thinking in that context as, as our backdrop. I want to go back to the conversation where you alluded to, you know, the ruthlessness, if you will, the, uh, of, of near-peer competitors mm -hmm. in this information domain. And right. I'm, where I'm going is how can we – is there a capacity? Is there an, um, an appetite? 
mm-hmm. to learn from our competitors yes. and not necessarily – and just strip away that, that ruthlessness so we yes. can better anticipate. It's more of a defensive mode. Yep. Yep. I, I think the single most important opportunity we could seize, but uh, too often I, I've concluded we're reluctant – to either either we can't see it or we're reluctant to seize it. But regardless, typically when I have seen an adversary conduct what we consider to be their malign activities in the digital domain, particularly when it comes to trying to get a certain population to make choices or to do things that are advantageous to them or disadvantageous to us, it's a fairly transactional activity. They may offer something as a reward for doing what that malign actor wants to do, or they may just create you know, a, a false narrative of how horrific the Americans are and they're actually up to no good here and you should really do something about it. It's still generally transactional in return for them giving them what we know is false information, but it obviously resonates with the target population. They then believe they benefit from learning how malign the Americans are. And now they start taking actions or making decisions that we don't like. It's generally transactional. There is a much more powerful way of doing this. And that is using the information domain as well as the physical actions we decide to take to create influence, influence that creates advantages for us, where in this contest over what the adversary is telling a population versus what we are telling a population, because we are more influential with that population, they tend to believe us more. They tend to disregard what the competitor is saying, and they tend to say, oh, the Americans are saying this, I believe that because I like the Americans. I believe in the Americans. I believe in America. The Americans are much less likely to lie to me than these other actors are. That is the result of influence, which then begs the question, how does, in the modern era, how, does, how do we create the kind of influence we need so that in, the, in this contest of ideas, we tend to be more believable than somebody else is? There are two answers for that, in my opinion. One is just the old-fashioned way, which is still quite valuable. You have to be the generous actor. At least you have to be more generous than your competitors are. I, I prefer the term strategic generosity, and that is where we decide unilaterally that we are going to be more generous in virtually any form it could be financially, it could be militarily, it could be politically, but we're going to be willing to do things for a prospective population or partner that we, we want to be on our side that nobody else is willing to do. That creates generosity. The other way of doing it is by creating so much physical contact between Americans and that population that they come to know us, they come to understand us, and if we're willing to be generous, as I've already indicated, bonds of personal relationships start to be created. Networks of personal relationships begin to be created that when someday they must make a choice between aligning themselves with the United States on some important issue or aligning themselves with somebody else, 
their reaction will be, I know so many Americans. I, so many of them are my friends. So, so many of them are, are people that I love spending time with. I can't possibly make some other choice. That's the power of personal relationships. And coming back to the digital domain, it is now possible to create personal relationships without ever being in the same room with somebody. But it begs the question on these two scores, is the United States being strategically generous? And is the United States taking advantage of the digital environment to foster the creation of thousands, maybe even millions of personal relationships that create advantages for the United States downstream? The answer, I would argue, on both scores is mostly no. More on visualizing the information domain in a new era of deterrence and warfare when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Leaders speak on visualizing the information domain in a new era of deterrence and warfare with retired Lieutenant General Mike Nagata. And what you've described in terms of strategic generosity, I don't want to make a distinction that's not necessary, but it it used to be construed or possibly is still construed as soft power in a sense. Some people use that term. It's not a bad term. You know, and where I'm going with this is it might be a a distinction without a difference, but is the information domain Mm -hmm. more, if if you bear with me, more of a soft power play for lack of a better way of putting it, or it, it, because when you think of it, the kinetic aspects of, of, of the work that people right. do on the field, right. it, it is a little su- more subtle. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering, it, it, or is it not useful as a heuristic to even think of it that way? It, it's not unuseful. Okay. There are, I do have, it does have its downsides, okay. though. There's a tendency that I've encountered for people to believe that anything you call soft power is somehow inherently less important because of the soft and thereby less okay. powerful sure. than hard power. Yeah. You know, if you really want to get something done, you drop a bomb on it <laughs> at the risk of sounding crass. Yeah. Um, and that's wrong. Yes. That's wrong. It's, it's dead wrong, actually. The, the power that I see augmenting in the digital environment is changing at a far more rapid rate than traditional kinetic power. It's not that we're not making weapons improvements. We, we're, we are all the time. But, but that progress is mostly linear in my view, whereas the increase in power in the digital domain is exponential. 
And when you throw cyber onto that, yes. then you're dealing with even infrastructure. Right. So it can be kinetic. Right. Um, so, right. you know, well, thank you for bear, bearing with now, me there. For... there. There is another aspect of this, though, that I can't resist commenting on, sure. which is that I'm going to use a, an older analogy here. I, personally, minor military history student that I am, um, I would argue the last time we've seen this kind of revolution sure. of power in the human environment, the last time we saw some, something like this was probably the emergence of gunpowder in the 10th to 12th century, which literally changed the face of mankind in ways both good and bad. And then, you know, if you go back centuries before that, you know, the, the first, you know, smelting of steel or bronze, the, these, these, were, these were pivotal moments in human history. We're going through another one of them right now. Um, and I think you could make an argument. I'm not totally convinced of this, but I think you could make a reasonable argument that this may be the single most dramatic change in the arc of human history. We just don't know yet how much the emergence of this digital environment is going to change human existence. It has already become somewhat unrecognizable just to my own generation. I mean, the things that my kids are able to do are still rather bewildering to me. Imagine what my grandchildren are going to be able to do because there's no end in sight to this right now. And the only reason I say that is because you didn't ask this, but it's on my mind. Sure. What are the consequences of failing to grasp this? That's a great next question. Just what is the consequences of it? Particularly if somebody else does. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that will flow from this, if we fail to adequately compete in this environment, is something we have called ourselves ever since World War II will no longer be true. We called ourselves after World War II, and most countries have bought this line ever since, although that, that number has dwindled somewhat in the last decade, I would argue. But nonetheless, for many people around the world, when Americans say publicly, we are the leader of the free world, most populations around the world generally react with, okay, I'll buy it. You're the leader. I won't necessarily do everything you tell me to do, but I'm inclined to do it. Sure. If we fail to adequately compete in this new environment, not only will that become, un well, no longer will we lose credibility in making that statement. We will no longer be able to make that statement in, in any way that actually helps us because nobody will believe it. We also won't deserve it. So let's talk about, I'd love to get your perspective, General, on what to uh, what to do either operationally or strategically to avoid that situation and where i'm going with this is how does this effort that we've yep. been talking about rest on transforming leadership and culture and bringing in the right personnel or the right skill set you know it's a uh, it's trite to say but it's one of the oldest leadership maxims that i'm familiar with all it takes is better leadership I mean, and I'm really not trying to be trite about this. It fundamentally, leaders decide what organizations and the people within them end up doing. But most importantly, I would argue, what the best leaders do is they ensure that the culture 
of their organization is optimized for the success the organization is trying to pursue. Now that sounds so that sounds so obvious. You know, I, I, it's hard to imagine anybody saying, "Well, yeah, of course, the culture of the organization ought to be optimized for what the organization is trying to do." Why, why would you do anything different? Well, here's the problem: both in government and outside of government, I've seen hundreds of examples where at least certain aspects of the culture in an organization are antagonistic to what the organization is trying to do. How do you address that? What's the solution for an organization that is trying to accomplish X, but its culture is more inclined to accomplish Y? What's the solution for that? Good leadership. Good leadership finds a way to change the culture of the organization in ways that align it with what the organization is trying to accomplish. Again, it sounds so obvious, but I I suspect there are many people in your listening audience who had this personal experience where they literally see the culture of the organization defeat what the leader is trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, probably one of the oldest sayings in large organizations is, I'll just wait him out. He's not going to be here forever. She's not going to be forever. So this stupid idea he wants to pursue, uh, we'll just outweigh him. Someday he'll be gone and we'll get back to normal. Uh, good leaders identify that and they find useful, effective ways of getting that kind of thinking out of their organization and instead creating a set of beliefs, a set of values in the organization that are aligned with what the organization is trying to accomplish. The best organizations I've ever been in, when you ask yourself the question, what do the people in this organization believe? And then differently but relatedly, what do the people in this organization value? If both of those things are compatible with what the organization is trying to accomplish, in my experience, 100% of the time the organization accomplishes it, even if it's incredibly difficult. Because everybody, everybody believes in it, is willing to sacrifice for it, and is absolutely determined to succeed in the ways the culture is propelling them towards. When that doesn't happen, it's because of bad leadership. When it does happen, it's because of good leadership. And there are other things that need to happen. The organization needs to be properly funded. The organization needs to have the right authorities, particularly if it's a government organization. But compared to the importance of the culture in the organization, they pale by comparison. You could have all of that, and if your culture is doing exactly what you just said. That is right. You, you know, undermining the, it. You can have all the money in the world, but if your culture is antagonistic to your goal, you will never see your goal. General, I, I would like your perspective um, to the extent you're willing to give it on this particular question. It's about how should governments or stakeholders combat misinformation mm. as a tool of modern conflict? Yes. Very, very important and very topical conversation these days. Here's my view. There's an old saying, the best way to beat a bad idea is to have a better idea. And I think one of the direct things that we ought to infer from what I consider to be an absolutely true statement, the best way to beat a bad idea is to have a better idea, is to stop believing that the path to success 
lies in criticizing the bad idea. I'm not suggesting that the bad idea shouldn't be criticized. Yeah, it should be, particularly if we've got a sound basis for criticizing it. But there are significant limits to how much good that will actually do us. Because too often, there is a downside to relentlessly criticizing the bad idea. You're drawing attention to the bad idea. It may still be necessary to criticize it, but I think too often, particularly at the policy level, people don't understand there's an automatic downside because you're actually highlighting the bad idea. Even though your intent is to critique it and assault it and show how hollow and hypocritical it is, you, it, you know, it's like the old saying in Hollywood, there's no such thing as bad publicity, <laughs> bad press, right? You're, you're, you're giving, giving them publicity free, no, yeah. whether you like it or not. So again, not saying we shouldn't criticize it, but we should manage our expectations about how much good it actually does it. And we should certainly dispense with the idea that this is the path to victory, that this is all we have to do if we just become even more awesome at condemning and criticizing and peeling apart and showing how hollow and contradictory it is. If we, be- if we continue to believe that, we're just going to lose. We're never going to be good enough. We have to embrace the much harder path, much more complicated path, much, much more risky path because some of what I'm about to suggest will go wrong. We will make mistakes. We will embarrass ourselves. But that is, as awful as this idea is, here's the better idea. Here's the more attractive idea. It has the disadvantage of being harder, more complex, in some cases difficult to swallow. We will make mistakes in implementing this. But this is how we win. This is the better idea, the better belief, the better set of values, and here's why it is so. And we say it so well, we say it so often because volume matters, that not only will it end up be more appealing to a larger audience, but we're taking attention away from the bad idea. Coming back to a point I know I've already emphasized I know hundreds of practitioners in this environment who are trying to advance what I just characterized. And in fact, I learned all of this from them. None of what I just said is original thought. I've watched them try to do this, to be just better than the competitor or the adversary. But as I indicated at the beginning of this conversation, so many times I have watched them get told by whoever their supervisor, their boss, their, their agency or department, no, 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 that, 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 that's, that's way too risky. That, that, uh, that might blow up in our face. That might show up in the Washington Post. We're, we're not going to do that. I, you know, we're not doing that on my watch. And so many of these practitioners are deeply frustrated today because they know, they know that accepting risk is the price of success in this environment. We have to be willing to try harder than the adversary is in part to compensate what we've already talked about, the fact they can be morally ruthless. They can lie, cheat, and steal all day long. We cannot do that, which means we have to be even more proficient at this than we would otherwise to compensate for the fact we cannot be morally ruthless. But again, it all requires a degree of risk tolerance 
that unfortunately today in the U.S. government is in very short supply and in some organizations non-existent. So uh, it's an unfair question where I'm going next, but it's about the future of this mm-hmm. domain. And, and you've pointed out throughout throughout our conversation that this thing changes on a dime. It just yes. it's a constant evolution. Yes. And so I was I would ask you. In, from your vantage point, what does the future hold in this area, both for the U.S. and in general? Well, at the risk of being melodramatic, I think I've already indicated this. I, I, I think you know, the, the America's standing as the leader of the free world is, is at stake. I, I'm not suggesting we're about to fall off a cliff. But I would argue I can see the cliff in ways that 20 years ago I couldn't see it. We're closer to the edge of the cliff than we've ever been, at least since World War II, in my personal opinion. Um, There's still plenty of time for us to change course, fix ourselves, and get better, and eventually triumph in this environment in the way we have – in America has become used to triumphing in so many different arenas, economically, scientifically, industrially. You know, America is very used to being a winner. We're losing the information fight right now, in my view. Um, it's not catastrophic yet, but I can see catastrophe. It's out there on the horizon, and it's getting closer. So what needs to be done? Um, at the risk of repeating myself, all it takes is better leadership. Well, sir, thank you for coming in today and uh, talking to us about this this important topic, but more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your 38 years of service to this country. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, and I really appreciated the you giving me the chance to get all this off my chest. <laughs> it was wonderful. Thank you, sir. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Leaders speak on visualizing the information domain and a new era of deterrence and warfare with retired Lieutenant General Mike Nagata. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.